this is a picture of uh guy that's sitting with his back to us. His name is Jesus. His nickname is Rooster. And then we got a guy named uh, Chewy right there. Then we have Will, and then I was in that room, and also Little Will. So uh, Will called me and said, hey, we got a guy, an old friend of his from the neighborhood. Uh, both of them used to actually attend Chase School right down the block and grew up going to play ball at Salem. And Will said, why don't you come, uh, why don't we go visit them and drop off some food? So we drop off some food, and while we were there, I just decided to take this picture and capture the moment where Will took a regular conversation and told it to, to end up turning it into telling these uh, men about the gospel. And he played some music. He played Restless uh, Love, a uh, Reckless Love, excuse me. Uh, I forgot the other song. But he played two songs, and then we led them in the sinner's prayer. And uh, that was a Saturday. We don't know what happened necessarily with that sinner's prayer right away, because then we, you know, we took off. But Rooster uh, had. Jesus actually died two days later. He was already on oxygen and stuff, so he died. And then the funeral was the next Saturday, and the family, you know, they're not, they don't really have that much religious, uh, don't have a real, they didn't really know what to do in terms of the funeral, so they actually contacted Will. Will contacted Carrie and myself, and us three basically put on a funeral service for this family. Will got to speak, Pastor Carrie got to I had to pray, and I got to speak a little bit as well. We were able really to help them. I just want to let you all know that. And uh, Chewy, who's his real close friend, says that he believes that he prayed that prayer. He believes that he's in heaven. And Chewy is on the same path. He believes that he believes in what he prayed. And so I really feel like uh, it was just a real encouragement to me. I wanted to throw that out to you all. But sometimes we don't know what's going on, but there's stuff going on in this church. Amen? All right. So, Jaden, if you can click. Anybody remember the guy in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who had it all? He had what most people would call the good life. Anybody want to shout out that name? Solomon, yeah. So, Solomon, he had houses, chariots, incredible wealth. Um, he did the math, it would look like trillions now. He had many women, he had power, he had fame. Even queens and kings of other Lands and countries would come and visit him to hear him speak. And in Second uh, Chronicles 9-4, it tells us that the Queen of Sheba was breathless. It took her breath away of everything that he had. So he lived this uh, so-called good life. I want to ask a couple questions. Was he content? Did he love his life? Did he really see the good days this whole time? Did he really experience living life to the fullest? Let's listen to Solomon himself. He says in Hebrew, in, excuse me, in Ecclesiastes 2.17, he writes, So I hated life. I hated life because everything is futility and striving after wind. Isn't that tragic? He had it all, supposedly. He ends up saying, I hate life. If he'd been living in our day, he would have had all the achievements and all the fame and fortune that a lot of people talk about and strive for. But even with all that, he says he hated life. And I start with that because that's a great non-example. And that's a great non-example that a lot of people around us, and sometimes us ourselves, believe in. We can learn a lot from a non-example. Let's get a more modern example. You all familiar with Ernest Hemingway? Some of those books you had to read that you were really mad about. Yeah, Ernest Hemingway. Yep, me too. Uh, I'm with you on that. So... 
where it feels like he had really, really little regard for the Bible. He didn't really like to talk about anything as sin, or he didn't really believe in right and wrong. He did everything that he wanted to do. He had little regard for any definition of his behavior. He just did whatever. And how did that end up for him? He literally pursued every passion he could in every country. Ernest Hemingway committed committed suicide, put a bullet in it. I just want to tell you all these nine examples because I think sometimes we get caught up, even as believers and with our friends and things like that, we get caught up in uh, mischaracterizing what the good life is. So again, I want to remind you that 1 Peter 3 is going to be about the good life. What what defines the good life? Living the good life. And this one has a context. It's talking about living the good life in the midst of suffering. So 1 Peter 2.12, you don't have to turn there. It says that we are to live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So this whole section that we're going to study today, it starts with a finally because he's finally finishing this thought of what it means to live in front of people who are not yet believers or who do not understand the Christian way, the Bible-believing way. And he says that they need to see your good deeds and glorify glorify God. He talked about in the beginning about relationship to government, relationship to uh, the servant, the servant and master relationship or labor. And then he also related it to the relationship with spouse, husband and wife. Pastor Ralph talked about that last week. So today, he doesn't have like a specific place. It's more of a general. So this is a lot. There's a lot of commandments. I'm trying to do my best to kind of group them together for us, but there is a lot. So if I'm talking a little fast or fall out, that's why I fell out. Okay? So the main question we want to answer today is this. What attitude do we need? What attitude do we need to live the good life in the midst of the ungodly world? In the midst of the ungodly world. Remember, the context here is he's speaking to people who are functioning as exiles. They're in a world that's not really theirs. So what attitude do we need? So turn with me to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9. And it reads, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Jaden, if you can clip. So there's five things, five attitudes that he's asking for. We're going to break them down a little bit. Not, not as much as we should, we're going to break them down a little bit. The first one is unity of mind. And what that means is being like-minded. Now, you might be a little bit confused. You might understand like-minded with fellow believers, but what would it mean to be like-minded with the, with the world or with the people that are maybe even against what you think or what you believe? The idea here, guys, is that we're supposed to be peacemakers. That it's not our job to go around arguing with everybody. It's not our job to be contrary as much as possible in our discussion. So the weapons of our warfare, the way we fight, are not necessarily through through social media. Uh, Back then it wasn't necessarily by being uh, contradicted to everything, contrary to what everyone was saying or thinking. 
to find every fight and fight it out. We don't win on that level. The way we win is on the spiritual level, not the flesh of the level. So what does that mean? That means that to pull down the strongholds of Satan and the differences and stuff, what we need to do is that we need to be above reproach in our testimony. We need to be an example of harmony. How we love each other, how we have like mind with each other, how we do things and go about this world and work together. And then when we're in the midst of other people who don't believe what we believe and how we try to create harmony with them, that would be one of the greatest weapons we can use rather than being contrarian and arguing every point out. I think about social media. Uh, something goes out, there's a picture, there's a comment, and there's a side conversation, and it can get ugly really, really fast. I want to I challenge everyone here to really think about this verse and what it means to be like-minded even with the people that we are living with who don't believe what we believe. How can we be peacemakers in that arena where uh, peacemaking is not real, not real common? That's usually where people can really be tough, right? Next one, Symp- sympathetic. Talks about being sympathetic. Before I go, I want to talk about Jesus. Jaden, if you can hit the other one. I want to talk about Jesus. I decided that, for, you know, Peter, he hung out with Jesus. He's a disciple of Jesus. So everything he's saying is coming from that example he saw. So what I just did on the right side is I just said, well, how did Jesus kind of show this stuff? So that's what's there. The next one is sympathetic. The word here means to suffer with someone. You got pathos, which means suffer in there. And then you got sim, which is like the word sum, which means together. So to suffer together. So to put it simply, we are supposed to be ready to share in the suffering of others even outside of the church. We're supposed to be known as being sympathetic. And you know what I think about? It makes me think about how sometimes we are so good or we create a culture, it's almost like a subculture, in a way where we can find a way to not really be part of the world at all and not notice. It is so easy nowadays to not have to deal with the poor. You can swipe right, you can swipe left. You can turn off your phone. You can change the channel, right? Uh, in our neighborhoods, we're becoming better and better in Chicago of keeping the poor into areas that we want them to be in, right? Uh, it's becoming real easy to not be sympathetic, real easy to not have to engage with what's going on. So what should we do about this? we got to start setting up our lives to start sharing in the feeling of others. Think about Jesus as the high priest, literally came from heaven to go through what we went through. Some of you all just need to go down the block, (laughs) right? We need to be able to dive in and jump in and come from our place and go to where people are struggling. A question I'm asking is, is your life and your schedule Keeping you away from the hurting? Is your lifestyle and schedule keeping you away from the hurting? Uh, do you have places where you could find a, where you could find opportunities to help someone and struggle with someone? What happens when someone you know uh, has a death in the family? How is your life set up to suffer with that person? Just real, really, really practical, really uh, concrete here. Okay? next one it talks about is loving. The idea of loving here is to put others 
for yourself. Uh, there's, a, there's a preacher in Atlanta. His name is Dahadi Lewis. Uh, I love his, uh, this is his church's vision. They go like this. Love God. Love others. Do whatever else you want to do. Love God. Love others. And do whatever else you want to do. You see, everything else is encompassed in those first two, right? Loving God and then loving others. So it's so important that our attitude is not just sympathetic. It's not just we're like-minded, but that we're loving. Think about how Jesus gave himself. Think about what it means to love someone. He had a lifestyle of others before himself. Not only did he talk about it, he did it. He prayed about it. He showed acts of service. It's really an all-encompassing. Next one, tender-hearted. The root word of this one is a little bit weird. So this tender-hearted word, it means tender-hearted, but guess where from? The intestines or the bowels. We all like, hmm. <laughs> so it really comes in from that, like, deep within. So compassion is from the depths of who you are. There's a Christian philosopher named Francis Schaeffer who passed away. But this is something he said. I'm going to read two quotes because I really feel like he was really good at grasping the culture. And this is what he said. He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Have you, had the, have you heard the world say stuff like that about it? You know, if you read that Bible and it says stuff and they know what some of that Bible says and we don't live that lifestyle out, they're going to call us on that. You got to make sure we're, as they say in the neighborhood, we're about that life. Hmm. Another quote of his. The Bible is clear. I am to love my neighbor as, as myself in the manner needed, in a practical way, in the midst of the fallen world, at my particular point of history. And that's why you can't be a pacifist. You can't just let things happen around you. Because in the world we live in, it's lost. And we cannot desert or leave people who need the help the most. I, I used to go around and say I was an evangelist by nature, but I don't know if I want to keep saying that. I think what, I, what, what always happens to me is I cannot go a day without thinking about how if those ICI missionaries, ICI is a Christian youth ministry in the neighborhood, if those ICI ministries did not walk through that neighborhood and see me and invite me over there, I just can't even imagine what my life would be. Now look, at, I see that in my kids, I see that in my wife. There's no way my wife would have married me if I was still as ghetto as I was. I was more ghetto than this guy, sorry. But can you, like, I have to go back, and I remember a six-foot-six, red-headed white guy walking through the neighborhood, picking up kids to go to camp, to go to club, and to hear about Jesus. And uh, we can't desert the people that need, that need the gospel. We can't, and when you think about the word desert or leave, you think about running away from, but some of us, we're not even in the vicinity to even run away from. Still running away. Still being away. I think about how uh, Jesus even dealt with Martha. 
You guys remember Martha had a brother who died, and there was two sisters, Mary and Martha. And for one, the sister Mary, she came to Jesus and, you know, talked about her brother dying. And he told Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He gave her the word. But then another sister he got to when he finally arrived close there, she came out and talked to him. And what did he do with her? That's what the, the memory verse to memorize if you have a bad memory. That's where we get the memory verse, Jesus wept. Wept with her. Wept. He, he just wept. He just, he was with her. He was there. He was in their home. He, he was there with them. And he cried with her. He didn't give her the same word. He was tenderhearted to what different people needed. The real practical point here, uh, when you think about hospitality, a lot of us think about, you know, some Oreo cookies and some milk and a nice bread for our other Christian friends. If you think that, you have not been reading your Bible. Hospitality, if you look up all the verses dealing with hospitality, a good portion of them are having to deal with the stranger or with the person who is in need. If you're a person who's very hospitable just with the body themselves, you may have a gift that you're not utilizing all the way. So feel free to open that up and set your house up for that. I have a friend that um, she chooses on purpose not to have real nice furniture because she's going to invite crazy people in the house. <laughs> she also always makes an extra two or three helpings of whatever she's, she's cooking in case somebody come through or that space is there in case someone comes. So you just kind of set your life up for, hey, I met someone I need to need to get in there. Um, when Diana and I were part of a house church, we had two homeless men that came and met in there every every day, I mean every Sunday at our you know, in our living room. You know, there's something that happens when you have these, you know, these two Two homeless men in there. Like your house don't smell the same afterwards or during. You know, you, you just start. But you know, we got over all of that. And uh, I remember when uh, one of them was in a real tragic, a tragic beating. He was a homeless man, and a bunch of teenagers jumped him on the west side and really, really destroyed his life. They killed him. It was really, really bad. But we were able. Our small group Bible study. I mean, our small church was able to come and minister to that family. Uh, and it was just such a great joy to be a part of. That's still one of the best things I've ever been a part of in terms of ministry. So be tender-hearted, be compassionate, be compassionate. I would say half of—I uh, sound like GI Joe here—but half the battle with compassion is being there. <laughs> half the compassion, half the battle is being there. The next one here is uh, humble-minded, and nothing says it better than what it says about Jesus in Philippians two. 3 through 7a. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Guys, he washed the disciples' feet. He showed them. He showed them. He was humble. He was willing to be a servant. Servant leadership. You, I, I don't think I've told everyone. I've told this story a lot. 
But one time I got an award my second year of teaching because I created this like math program and they really, really liked it. So this place wanted to give me an award. The thing is, it's one of these hokey places. So the way the person like started it, where a bunch of people are in this big conference, the way the person started, he's like, he started playing like a horn and then like started the event. And everyone has these weird, they're dressed weird. It's just really weird. I'm like, I don't know how I got this award or how I got invited. So in one of the conference, in one of the breakout sessions, they talked about uh, to give an idea of what leadership means to you. So I went with servant leadership. I talked about how a great leader is someone who serves, who puts themselves out there, who sacrifices for the good of the people that are leading. And man, that idea stood out above all the other leadership ideas in a class of about 50. But I messed up. The way I messed up, they said, well, where did you get that idea from? I said, oh, that's from the Bible. <laughs> and they were like, oh, for real? <laughs> then they didn't like the idea as much. But that idea of serving leadership is something that is very attractive. It's something that can really, really be something that people will look at um, and might like it, even though they might not like where it came from. And then the last one here, oh, I wanted to mention one more thing about that. Uh, I've been listening to, I was listening to a a preacher named Tim Keller, and he said something that was really cool when it comes to being humble-minded. He said sometimes people come to him, and they will have a complaint, or they'll have a worry, they'll say something that's kind of negative, or something they want to give him in terms of feedback. And he says that even if they deliver it the wrong way, or even if their feedback is mostly wrong, let's say 80% of it is wrong, or just flat out not, not intelligible. He would say a humble person would be able to look at that 20% that is actually accurate. I want to challenge you guys. Sometimes when we're listening to our coworkers, the way that they deliver it, or we listen to people out here, the way that they deliver it shuts us off from ever thinking about what they're saying. But I would say go ahead and take a humble stance and think about what could be true and what they're saying, even if the delivery is off. And what does all this do? The last one has an asterisk because it is not an attitude. The Bible tells us to not retaliate, to not retaliate. How can you not retaliate? How can you not revile? Well, one thing you have to do is you have to start loving, loving your enemy. what Jesus said. You have to pray for them. You have to thank God for them, which sounds, which sounds absolutely backwards, but that's exactly what it is. Speak well of them. Demonstrate acts of service. Peter was there when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I was a sixth grade teacher. I had a, I had a student who, whenever he got in line, he would start wrestling. I confronted him about it. I was really tough on him because it was something that he kept doing. He went home and told his parents uh, some really bad things. He said that I cursed at him. He said... All these things that just weren't true. You know, the whole class is there. No one heard that, but he said these things. His parents come up. Both of them are very, very angry. And in front of my principal and assistant principal, they read off these lists of accusations, you know. And the parents full-hearted, you know, they, they totally believed it. And they were really, really upset. And, you know, in the end, we, you know, they found out and we all found out that the kid was not telling the truth and that I wasn't this big, bad bully or anything like that. But afterwards, that family would not talk to me. They would not say hi to me. 
I would see them, and I had to think, am I going to play that no high, no high game or, you know, look away game, pretend I don't see you game? And that was really hard because they had a bunch of kids, so I knew other kids were coming up, you know, at the school. And so what I did is I decided, you know what, even if they don't say hi to me, even if there's no respect there, they're really angry at me, I'm going to say hi. And I'm going to still be, you know, happy, happy-go-lucky Carlos. My last day at Chase, and I had taught four of their boys, my last day at Chase, I was leaving to go to my car, and I was kind of emotional because I've been at Chase forever. So I'm leaving to go to my car, and they drive by, and they stop. And they reversed all the way down the street to where I was. Both of them got out of the car. And they said, hey, we hear you're leaving. We just want to say thank you for working with our boys. Uh, They apologized for not saying hi to me and being cold to me. And I tell you what, I looked up up at the the sky and I said, God, that's too much. That was too nice. That was crazy. Like, it just kind of put everything together. And so I want to say that. This Christianity stuff and this stuff that Jesus is talking about through Peter, it actually works, guys. I've seen it work so many times. All right, let's move on to the next. 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. I'm going to start speeding up. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a quote from Psalm 34. And what's Peter doing here? Same thing maybe some of you all are going through here. Peter is thinking about it just like I was thinking about it when I was preparing this. Sometimes you hear some of this, you're like, that's too much. That doesn't make sense. Are you for real? Like for real? Like someone is mean to me and I'm supposed to not be mean back? And You know, this, this sounds way too much. All these attitudes I need to have. So Peter is probably thinking the same thing when he writes this to these people who are struggling. So what does he do? He gets more background. He gets more backup from the Bible. He goes back to the Old Testament. And what I did here is I kind of showed what would, what would kind of help or what would be the support for, 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 the, for the different attitudes they spoke of. So where it says, uh, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That would support the idea of being like-minded and loving and tender-hearted. Where it says, let them turn away from evil, that supports humility, response to, uh, the response to being a blessing. And do good, that supports all of them. Let them seek peace, that supports all those attitudes. And pursue it, that supports the actions of sympathy and the tender-heartedness, the compassion peace. So Peter goes back and says, no, this is something that's been going on in the Bible and in the scriptures and in Christianity and, and in God's salvation. This is all part of it. It's always been. So he goes back and gets some support. Last section. So the title of the sermon is Securities and Suffering. So the question I want to ask and finish off with today is, what securities does God give us? We're going to be these model citizens. We're going to, leave, we're going to live the good life. We're going to do these. We're going to have this attitude we're going to bless people that revile us. What securities do we have in this? What securities do we have? Well, let's look at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. It reads, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So what's our security? First of all, I want to mention something that I think we're all kind of feeling. We know that in First Peter, the context here is they were being persecuted, they were being harassed, they were being made fun of. And I want to let you all know that right now in America, you can invite someone to church, you can talk about church, you can maybe even pray for your meal before, before your, uh, your uh, co-workers. And right now it's kind of still like a Christian, kind of pseudo-Christian culture and, and country. But I think their time is coming, and the writing's on the wall, that just like many of the European countries, this country is going to be post-Christian. It's going to be post-Christian. It's not going to be where you could go up to somebody, invite them to church, and that would be normal. That's going to be really weird. That's going to be really awkward. Kind of like what was going on in this context, where there was, you know, they were inviting someone to their home to see what they were learning about this way of following Jesus, right? So, What's our security in all this? What, what can we do? So what I wanted to say here is that I'm watching Christians. They're becoming anxious. They're becoming fearful. They're afraid. But I'm, tell, I'm telling you guys right now, you're going to have a problem when persecution comes. We're going to have a problem when persecution comes if, if we don't understand what we, need, what we need to be doing. And so what are some of these things we need to be doing? What are these securities that kind of hook us up? Verse 13 tells us that we need to have a passion for good. And the reason why this is security is because even in the craziest persecution, most of the time, a real good life that is benefiting the culture, that is benefiting people around them, that is loving people around them, people won't kill you. It's really hard to harm someone who's lived a really good life that's benefiting the culture. Now, some of you all say, well, Jesus did a lot of real good things and, and he died. And the next verse kind of brings that up. It says, there's an idea where it says, um, but even if you should suffer. So he, he understands that sometimes even the best people, they do suffer. He didn't guarantee that you wouldn't. But he says, even if you do, and that word, that phrase, like, even if you do, that means like per chance. So, for example, even if you do suffer, what's the security there? The security there is that you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. If you were to die, you'll be blessed. You'll be in heaven. You'll be blessed. Hmm. The next one, a willingness to suffer. If you do suffer... You will be blessed. Sorry, I repeated myself. Look at verse 15. Another security is that when things are going bad, when things are, are, are when, when the structures are all falling apart, you can have a focus on God. When things go crazy around us, we tend to have a better focus on God at times. So what does that mean? Rather than being afraid, rather than fearing persecution or fearing whatever, we're going to start thinking about Christ more. That's our security, that sometimes these persecutions and these troubles push us closer in our relationship to God. 
You don't, fo- you don't focus on the persecutor. You don't focus on the persecution. You focus on, you focus on your Savior. You focus on Christ. Last, uh, last one. There's a promise of future glory and a future hope. The word for defense, and that's a popular verse, the word for defense here uh, is an apologetic. And that could be formal, which is happening in some places, where they might have to stand before a court or they might have to stand trial and actually defend what they believe and get in trouble if they don't recant or take away certain parts that go on parts of the world. Or it could be informal as well, where someone in your job could be like, yo, you're a little bit, you're a little bit different. Why is this? Your lifestyle uh, is kind of, I, I don't understand why you do what you do. And you have to be ready to give an answer. And the only way you're ready with that is if you're in your Bible and, in your, and if you're in prayer. I think if you're counting on sermons and you're counting on small group Bible studies and things like that, I don't know if you're going to be ready. So this is a, just a real big uh, push to have everybody in their word and everybody praying. So that when, the, when things come up, when questions come up, you don't give the stock answer. You just kind of give an answer that just flows out of what you've been doing in your time with the Lord. So really, you just kind of sit there when they ask you questions and you pray and God gives you the words to say. I never have strategy. The strategy is the stuff that I did way before in the morning and at night and in the car ride listening to sermons. That's the strategy. But when you get in front of them, what you're going to say, that's, that's not even you. You just open your mouth and God helps you with that. Yep. And then verse 17 says, you suffer when you do bad. So it gives us like a situation says, when, when people do bad things, they suffer. So you might as well suffer for good. Might as well suffer for good. And I want to say uh, one more thing and then I'm done. Well, and then I'm, done, I'm getting to the application. One more thing and I'm done. You know the way people indulge in doing bad? And we all know how to indulge in doing bad. Like you can look at me and know that I indulge in Oreos sometimes, right? So you know how you could just, you took one or two cookies too much or too much milk, right? So we know how to do that. I want to challenge all of us to indulge in what is, what is good. And sometimes when you hear a list, you take one of them, but just try to grab them all. Try to grab those attitudes. Last thing, Jane, if you could show this. The next one. I don't know where this came up. I was just thinking, if it doesn't make sense, I apologize. It really made a lot of sense for me. I'm going to do my best. It'll be quick. Okay. You guys know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the believer, right? The believer, you have your, your shepherd, you don't want, he leads you to green pastures, all those great things. Amazing verse. I was thinking about, what about the people who don't, don't have that relationship with the shepherd? What's that like? Like, how does that verse, or what would be the remix that they would have for that? You can hit the next one, Jay. Some people is, some people would be, I am my shepherd. Now, how sad is that? For a sheep to try to be its own shepherd. You guys know anything about sheep? They're not on the list of, of smart. They're on the other side. And they're like exactly perfect to get caught by like almost any animal. You literally stick your pinky finger in a sheep, you get tangled in their wool. Like any, any predator can grab them. Even a squirrel could probably knock one down. Okay? So imagine the people out there, guys, the people in our world, 
that are reviling us and stuff, some of them, they have to be their own shepherd. No wonder why they're so pissed. David, can you get the next one? Some people say the sheep are my shepherd. I follow what else everyone else is doing. And that changes every year. That changes every day. What used to be right is wrong. What's wrong is right. There's no absolute. That must be really hard to be following other sheep. They probably never get to get the green pasture. They don't get the still waters. Maybe. There's no absolute way. Jada, can you go to the next one? Then you got people where everything is my shepherd. They'll try anything. They're just lost. They're just trying anything to work. But none of those can function as a shepherd. And then the last one, what I believe happens to all the rest unless Jesus is your shepherd. But basically nothing is your shepherd. You're just a sheep out there in the world that's not very kind to sheep. I just want to challenge you all to think about those attitudes on how we're supposed to live with our coworkers, with our society. Um, may we be, may all be inspired to indulge in those activities that can help people know about Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word challenges us. But we know that uh, we can't do any of this stuff without you. That we are unable to do this on our own. Lord, I pray you would help us to cling to you, to talk to you, to read about you, so that we would be guided and that it would become personal to us. So we pray that our love for you and your love for us would be motivating to help the people and not to desert the people that are struggling out there, to not avoid them, but to engage in that, Lord, in whatever way you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen.